Good afternoon. Welcome. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. President Joe Biden gave his second State of the Union address to Congress and the nation last night. His 72-minute address, his first since Republicans gained control of the House of Representatives, was met with partisan heckling and even a couple of moments of bipartisan approval. Many consider the speech to be Biden's opening gambit in a bid for re-election. Joining me now is the author and journalist Farai Chidea. She's the host of Our Body Politic, which you can hear on WYPR Tuesday nights at 9 o'clock, although last night it was preempted by our coverage of the State of the Union address. But fear not, you can catch the podcast anytime. Farai Chidea joins us on Zoom from Brooklyn, New York. Hey, Farai, welcome back. Thank you so much. It is my honor to be on in my hometown. Yeah, your hometown indeed. And we are always honored to have you. So last night, what do you think President Biden needed to do? uh, And did he do it? You know, President Biden, to me, this has been such a fascinating presidency because you had, uh, you know, in terms of Democrats, you had the Clinton presidency, the Obama presidency with Vice President Joe Biden. And both the, the Clinton and Obama presidencies were more sort of technocratic and centered in Silicon Valley and in New York culture. And uh, President Joe Biden came in with more of an effort to try to unite the strength of the Democratic Party with Black women and other voters of color with some of the nearly lost or sometimes lost constituency of white working class Americans. And I think that's what we really heard in the State of the Union. He was trying to thread the needle in a deeply divided and polarized and frankly, heavily armed uh, and anxious America to make space for working class white Americans to re-engage with the Democratic Party. You know, it's interesting, um, the bipolarity uh, of uh, and, and the bifurcation of the political climate now, you know, has perhaps never been worse. And it was on full display last night. Axios had an interesting comment this morning. They said that Biden is betting that America wants to return to normal. Uh, that was certainly his bet in 2020 when he ran for president and he beat Trump. But the Republicans were certainly not acting normal uh, as, as, you know, general uh, rules of etiquette would dictate for a State of the Union speech last night. There's Kevin McCarthy, the new speaker, shushing people from the podium. Um, his his um, his take, you're exactly right, isn't a, a New York uh, sort of intelligentsia kind of take. It's a, it's a, you know, Scranton Joe kind of take. But do you think that that um, that got through to the to the viewing audience. I mean, given the the hostility that he encountered uh, for a good bit of the speech in the room last night. I actually think that you know, as as many of the the takes of the day have stated, um, you know, like this is one uh, Republicans turn themselves into props for Biden. That is uh, the head of an article by John F. Harris, uh, who you know is one of the founders of Politico, and I think that. In trying to outrace themselves to the front of the line to boo and jeer at President Biden, Republicans made the case that they were not the grown-ups in the room. And I think Speaker McCarthy did not want them to make that case, which is why he was shushing them like a kindergarten teacher with about as much effectiveness. Uh, what about the uh, divide that we saw in the Democratic Party during the election, during the primary leading up to the 2020 
election, the, the, that divide between the progressives on the left and the centrists like Joe Biden. Obviously, Joe Biden prevailed in that primary process and in, in the election. Um, do you think that has been healed? I mean, with the appointment of Hakeem Jeffries as now the minority leader replacing Nancy Pelosi, uh, do you think the Democrats have uh, have worked out their differences? And, and do you see, uh, you know, pretty consistent unity on that score? I think that the Democrats have a functional form of unity right now with a lot of um, a lot of challenges, you know, a lot of strong differences of opinion. I mean, you know, there's Joe Manchin, uh, who's the the kind of lone outlier ideologically, um, you know, on the right of the Democratic Party. Um, you know, now that his former outlier uh, cinema has has become an independent, but there's a wide range, you know, America is such a strange democracy. Like we have over 300 million people and only two parties. There are countries with like 5 million people that have 12 parties. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's right. just no place, there's no place for people to go ideologically, you know, if they want to be electable, except into one of the two parties. And so what you have seen with the Republican Party is kind of the capture of power by the MAGA faction. And even though President Trump is no longer in office, the MAGA faction and Marjorie Taylor Greene have essentially captured the the hold of the power in the Republican Party. Whereas in the Democratic Party, I think there's a, a, a gradation, you know, where um, Hakeem Jeffries and President Biden are not exactly alike, but they're close enough. And they are also themselves closer to the other outliers to the left and right of them. So it's interesting to see that the Democrats seem to have a functional working knowledge of how to cooperate. And the Republicans have made their own choices. And and it's functional in the short term. But in the long run, I think that President Biden and Democrats are betting that Americans will be exhausted with the endless, um, not just partisanship, but I'm, I'm going to be really honest here, and, and I haven't talked about this much yet. Uh, as you know, from being in Baltimore, uh, white supremacists are attempting to take down the power grid in the United States. This is extremely dangerous, and it is one of the reasons that white supremacy, which is an ideology, not a race, you can actually have people of color who are white supremacists, um, like, you know, Enrique Terrio of the Proud Boys, who's Afro-Cuban. Um, rare, but it happens, yeah. and you can obviously have a lot of white people who are not white supremacists, but white supremacists have infiltrated the military, police departments, seats of government locally and and some would argue nationally and this is a problem for all of us we could be killed regardless of our race and i think that president biden is betting that people who would rather not die for nonsense would support him yeah and of course uh, here, right here in baltimore there was a a plot to uh, dismantle the electrical grid. Yep. Uh, and it seems that uh, one of the reasons Baltimore was chosen, this is a person who lives in Catonsville and then another person who's from Florida. The reason they got together on this is it's a majority black city. They wanted to attack yep. Baltimore for that reason and also just to, to spread chaos. Um, I heard somebody describe the Marjorie Taylor, Taylor Greens and the Lauren uh, Berberts in, in uh, uh, I forget the publication, uh, as the entrepreneur entrepreneur uh, or the, the the chaos entrepreneurs that that, that yes. they, they they just you know they 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 deal in this stuff this is their this is what they're selling uh and uh you know we see it 
uh, on display in the halls of Congress, and we see it on display in the fields of uh, cities like Baltimore. I mean, it is, and you're exactly right, uh, it's a very, very serious um, situation. Uh, what, what about the order of things that President Biden um, teed up last night? The fact that he put police accountability and police reform kind of near the top of the speech. Um, what, do you, what do you say, uh, what, what do you make of that? Do you think that was a, a, uh, an effective nod to the African-American community that's been so supportive of him? I think it is. I think there's also a slight double-edged sword there, which is that I know that um, some African-Americans are like, look, you know, we are tired of being killed, but we're also tired of being underpaid. And all of the appeals about jobs and the economy um, in speeches like Biden's are often targeted at these uh, former white Democrats who have left the party and a lot of the jobs and economy language and, and you know, talk about uh, the female uh, steel worker, uh, I believe it was steel worker, maybe electrical worker who was, you know, working on a bridge span, um, you know, is, is appealing to the sort of, you know, white uh, um, skilled laborer um, and, and who's incredibly important. You know, it's like, like so, so many of my um, like. F- there's lots of family stories about Mr. Lee, who was uh, my great grandmother's husband, and and uh, uh, you know at Bethlehem Steel, and both white and black people worked together to build this country. But I think that black people sometimes feel like we always end up in the policing speech, but we don't end up in the job speech. So that's just another interesting point to pay attention to. Yeah, but the, as you mentioned, the the person that she that, that he uh, the president uh, pointed out was an African American iron worker who's going to be part of this infrastructure deal. And then the president's in Wisconsin today, uh, touting that again. He was in Baltimore just a, a few days ago, touting a, a new train tunnel that's going to be built as part of the infrastructure act. So he is he is trying to uh, you know, yeah. connect. No, certainly. that is. But but you're exactly right. I mean, unions uh, have not had the greatest uh, track record by any means when it comes to diversity and equity. Uh, you know, they have been unions have have many of the unions, uh, labor unions have been hostile to people of color, and that that uh, you know perhaps is changing in some uh, in some regards. But uh, there's certainly a, a legacy there that that needs to be contended with. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Farai Chidea is the guest of our or the host of Our Body Politic, and my guest this morning or this afternoon. If you'd like to join our conversation, four one zero six six two eight seven eight zero. Our email is midday at WIPR.org. You can tweet us at Midday WIPR. Um, in terms of uh, President Biden's re-election bid, do you see this uh, as a as an opening salvo in that regard? There seems to be now a c- kind of a consensus uh, you know, developing that, yes, the president is going to run again uh, despite his age. It definitely sounds like it. And I really heard that during the whole section on the price of insulin. He talked about the drug prices and Americans having the highest drug prices in the world. And that is a huge problem. Like I now run my own small business, which produces our body politic and um, leaving um, a big corporation to go start my own show, I can't negotiate for the same rates. And, And my own drug costs went up exponentially. There were certain things that, you know, I was like, well, can I get the generic? They're like, no, they won't even pay for the generic. It's like, 
wait a minute, you know, I was used to having like Cadillac big company insurance. And the the reality is that in a country that is built on this idea of um, both the myth and the uh, the myth and the reality of the entrepreneur and small business owner, uh, things like healthcare costs have really spiraled out. And I think when President Biden, you know, hit that span about talking about drug prices and insulin, it was I was like, okay, he's in. He's in for 2024. And, and you know, again, sort of cycling through what um, some other people have been talking about as they're evaluating the 2024 race is that it appears, you know, President Trump has filed to run again in 2024. Uh, Nikki Haley is in. One might expect a lot more Republicans to be in the race at this stage, except that President Trump is in and they don't want to go down as friendly fire um, within the within the party by announcing too soon. So in some ways, President Trump is kind of blocking the evolution of the Republican Party. Um, you know, many people in the Republican Party, let alone people outside of the Republican Party, don't think he could be elected again, but also are too afraid to challenge him. And it is that space that President Biden is occupying, like this kind of uh, safe zone in between the battles of the Republican Party. And when the president uh, made his remarks about, for example, Medicare being able to negotiate drug prices, um, that exchange about Social Security and Medicare uh, was one of the most dramatic moments of the speech last night. Uh, and it seemed to me that the president kind of relished the fact that the crowd was uh, getting into it and the crowd was even opposing him. And he played them uh, to a certain extent like a violin um, because, oh, yeah. because he, he ended up getting a, a commitment uh, on live television uh, for something that you know often takes meeting after meeting after meeting behind closed doors. Let's listen, to, first of all, to what uh, Mr. Biden said about Medicare and Social Security. Some of my Republican friends want to take the economy hostage. I get it, unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. And in fact, that proposal uh, was uh, put forth by Rick Scott, the head of the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee. It is in writing. Uh, we also have this clip from Mike Lee, senator from Utah. Uh, so despite the Republicans' uh, protestations that the president was not being uh, accurate in his uh, assessment that some in the Republican Party want to end Social Security, uh, this is what Mr. Lee had to say. I'm here right now to tell you one thing that you probably haven't ever heard from a politician. It will be my objective to phase out Social Security, nice. to pull it up by the roots and get rid of it. Um, people who advise me politically always tell me that's dangerous, and I tell them, in that case, it's not worth my running. That's why I'm doing this, to get rid of that. Medicare and Medicaid are of the same sort and need to be pulled up. It's why he's doing it. He's running to get rid of Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare. So um, it seems that uh, that was a huge win for the president last night, uh, taking those things off the table when it comes to the debt ceiling argument. Yeah, I mean, 
boy, you, you want to talk about handing someone a really easy win. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, it's just, I I don't know what to say. I'm like, that's an unforced error right there. You know, you're just like, ah, shrug, you know, Um, I'm sure that, that, uh, you know, the speaker of the house was just, just, just gut busted right then. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be really difficult to imagine what the Republicans come to the table with, as you know, Mr. Biden said, we haven't heard any plans. We haven't heard any specifics about what things uh, they think should be cut uh, in return for raising the debt ceiling. Um, what was your your take on the president's uh, mention of policing and police accountability, police misconduct and brutality, the, the introduction of Tyree Nichols' uh, mom and stepdad uh, in the audience, another very emotional moment. In fact, uh, when he mentioned police accountability, uh, kind of surprised me. There was bipartisan standing ovation at that moment. Um, so even the Republicans yeah. stood up at that time. Uh, what'd you make of that? You know, I think it was well done. And, um, you know, when I think the part that really probably crossed the aisle at least for some people, was talking about not having to give the talk to his kids. Because one thing that has really struck me about this era in history where we are revisiting old and lingering wounds of race and division to the point of having domestic terrorist extremists being willing to try to, you know, cut off the lights and power to a whole city in the middle of a winter, is that a lot of white Americans are afraid that in a air quote majority minority America, which will happen, that their kids will be not not be safe, just like black kids and brown kids have not been safe in America today. And there's um, a wonderful fiction writer, Tanana Reeve Du, whose parents both worked in the civil rights movement. And she wrote a story from the perspective of a young girl who witnesses uh, the death of Martin Luther King Jr. at the Lorraine Hotel. It's fiction, of course, but this young girl's mother is, a, I think, head of the cleaning crew at, at the Lorraine Hotel in this story. And to hear, like, it's just a beautiful narrative of this 13-year-old girl watching a moment in history unfold that changes the entire world. And I, I think that some of the nastiness in America is coming from a place of misplaced love, where people are like, well, if we did this to those people's kids, what are they going to do to us in return? To which my family and many other black families and, and families of other races would say, we just want to not be killed and to earn a living and to be re- rewarded in a real meritocracy. But as if we don't address those fears of retaliation that some white people have, um, then we're not going to be able to get past this impasse. And I think that his framing was useful. Um, what do you think police reform, because uh, he mentioned, uh, as Democrats have been mentioning a lot since the murder of Tyree Nichols, uh, the George For- uh, Floyd uh, police Reform Act that they want mm-hmm. to get passed. Um, you know, when it comes to Memphis, for example, we've now uh, gotten the news that seven more Memphis police officers are under investigation in the Tyree Nichols incident. Uh, we have a horrible, horrible revelation that one of the officers involved in the murder uh, took pictures of Mr. Nichols and texted yeah. it to his friends. 
Um, the AP reported that uh, the Memphis Police Department, like uh, police departments here in Baltimore and around the country, have a very difficult time recruiting people to become police officers. They're offering $15,000 signing bo- bonuses, or if you relocate, they get another $10,000. They have gotten rid of uh, the requirement for police experience. All it takes is two years of work experience in any kind of job. Uh, they've gotten rid of the timing requirements for physical fitness drills um, because too many people were failing it. Um, So it sounds like, you know, they are sort of taking anybody they can get uh, and the quality of people that they're getting uh, is, is, you know, leaves something to be desired. And Lord knows that was on full display uh, in the death of Mr. Nichols. So um, what's police reform going to look like, uh, even if they, if if Mr. Biden was able to move the needle a little bit about that uh, in last night's speech? I think we have to stop asking police to be sadists. You know, it is easier. um, I I do a lot of studies of mental health and longer story for another time. We don't have uh, time for that, but I will be doing more on that. But I I listened to um, an interview with a former police officer who talked about drinking his way through his years uh, as an officer. This is a white man because of what he was asked to do in the name of the badge. I think that police reform is not just for citizens, it's also for the police themselves who are asked to act like overseers on a plantation instead of people with hearts and souls and minds. And one of my cousins who was an Apache pilot in Afghanistan, uh, in between being infantry, infantry in Iraq and Apache pilot in Afghanistan, looked into becoming a police officer and he saw, in his words, older and deconditioned men who were Um, you know, waiting for younger recruits that never showed up because people don't want to do this job. It's because we're asking people to do the wrong things, I think. Yeah, you had a great uh, segment on uh, our body politic uh, with the president of the American Psychological Association, Dr. Thema Bryant, about identifying people who are are prone to doing this kind of uh, violence. We just have a couple of minutes left. Let's sneak in one phone call from Don, who's calling from somewhere in Pennsylvania. Don, welcome to Midday with Farai Chideya. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I just want to say the speech that Joe Biden gave last night, President Biden gave last night, was the greatest speech that I've heard in my lifetime. I've been listening to presidential speeches. I'm 82 years old for a lot of years. I call his speech, particularly the first part of it, his utility speech. He finally spoke to and addressed in very simplistic terms the many achievements and accomplishments he's had since he's been in office. 300 bills or more passed to address a lot of issues that Americans have had and are confronted every day, bread and butter issues. He also addressed things, not addressed, but he also actually put Republicans on their heels when he raised the issue of Social Security. Someone that wrote that speech must have anticipated something along that lines. And so I would say on balance, President Obama went on offense, his tone, his issues that he raised about policing or just a whole myriad of things just touch people. I think his simple way of speaking is important. I would say it was a great speech. He literally ate the Republicans' lunch. They're on defense now. Well, thank you for that perspective, Don. I appreciate it. And uh, Fry, I don't know if you ever do this, but you know the White House sends out a copy of the speech, which is embargoed until he's delivered it. But they usually ar- arrives in our inboxes right around the time he's going to start. And I followed mm-hmm. along with the text 
while I was listening to the president deliver this speech. And he's always been an improver. Um, but boy, he improv virtually every single paragraph of the speech. He made up something or he changed some things, uh, mm -hmm. sometimes subtly, sometimes, you know, small things and sometimes whole cloth uh, in the moment. So, you know, that that uh, that Scranton Joe thing really came out because it was it, it seemed um, much of the speech really did seem improvised. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, Don's uh, feelings are, are, are shared by a lot of people that he connected with a lot of folks. Yeah, and I, and I do want to say we're, we're at a tough point, people. I think we're going to be asked to meet the angels of our higher nature. Um, we are going to be challenged as a nation and as cities, you know, whether it's Baltimore, New York, wherever. So I just wish us well, you know, and, and I believe that we can have a country where liberals and conservatives live in peace and harmony. I just think that in the near term, we will face a lot of challenges. So whatever side of the State of the Union you're on, please stay on the side of um, having a functional country. Let's do it. Indeed. Let's get, let's finish the job. As they, as the president said last night, Farai Chidea, the host of our body politic Tuesday nights at nine o'clock here on 88 one. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And we'll talk Thank soon. You. I hope mm -hmm. coming up, we continue our midday in the neighborhood series. Chu Smith, a former Harlem globetrotter has a plan for a community. We'll hear about it on the other side of a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is 88.1 WYPR, where you're tuned to Midday.